0: Chapter 4, Part 3 of Partial Portraits by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter 4, Part 3 Anthony Trollope. There is perhaps little reason in it, but I find myself comparing this tone of allusion to many lands and many things, and whatever it brings us of easier respiration with that narrow vision of humanity which accompanies the strenuous serious work lately offered us in such abundance, by the votaries of art for art, who sit so long at their desks in Parisian quatrième. The contrast is complete, and it would be interesting, had we space to do so here, to see how far it goes. On one side a wide, good-humoured, superficial glance at a good many things, On the other, a gimlet-like consideration of a few. Trollope's plan, as well as Zola's, was to describe the life that lay near him. But the two writers differ immensely as to what constitutes life and what constitutes nearness. For Trollope, the emotions of a nursery governess in Australia would take precedence of the adventures of a depraved femme du monde in Paris or London. They both undertake to do the same thing, to depict French and English manners, but the English writer, with his unsurpassed industry, is so occasional, so accidental, so full of the echoes of voices that are not the voice of the muse. Gustave Flaubert, Émile Zola, Alphonse Daudet, on the other hand, are nothing if not concentrated and sedentary. Trollope's realism is as instinctive, as inveterate as theirs, but nothing could mark more the difference between the French and English mind than the difference in the application, on one side and the other, of this system. We say system, though on Trollope's part it is none. He has no visible, certainly no explicit care for the literary part of the business, he writes easily comfortably and profusely but his style has nothing in common either with the minute stippling of daudet or the studied rhythms of flaubert he accepted all the common restrictions and found that even within the barriers there was plenty of material He attaches a preface to one of his novels, The Vicar of Bullhampton, before mentioned, for the express purpose of explaining why he has introduced a young woman who may, in truth as he says, be called a castaway. And in relation to this episode, he remarks that it is the object of the novelist's art to entertain the young people of both sexes. "'Writers of the French school would, of course, protest indignantly against such a formula as this, "'which is the only one of the kind that I remember to have encountered in Trollope's pages. "'It is meagre, assuredly, but Trollope's practice was really much larger than so poor a theory.' and indeed any theory was good which enabled him to produce the works which he put forth between eighteen fifty six and eighteen sixty nine or later in spite of his want of doctrinal richness i think he tells us on the whole more about life than the naturalists in our sister republic I say this with a full consciousness of the opportunities an artist loses in leaving so many corners unvisited, so many topics untouched, simply because I think his perception of character was naturally more just and liberal than that of the naturalists. This has been from the beginning the good fortune of our English providers of fiction as compared with the French. They are inferior in audacity, in neatness, in acuteness, in intellectual vivacity, in the arrangement of material, in the art of characterizing visible things. But they have been more at home in the moral world. As people say today, they know their way about the conscience this is the value of much of the work done by the feminine wing of the school work which presents itself to french taste as deplorably thin and insipid much of it is exquisitely human and that after all is a merit As regards Trollope, one may perhaps characterize him best, in opposition to what I have ventured to call the sedentary school, by saying that he was a novelist who hunted the fox, "'Hunting was for years his most valued recreation, and I remember that when I made in his company the voyage of which I have spoken, he had timed his return from the Antipodes exactly so as to be able to avail himself of the first day on which it should be possible to ride to hounds. "'He worked the hunting-field largely. It constantly reappears in his novels. It was excellent material.' but it would be hard to say within the circle in which he revolved what material he neglected i have allowed myself to be detained so long by general considerations that i have almost forfeited the opportunity to give examples i have spoken of the warden not only because it made his reputation but because taken in conjunction with barchester towers it is thought by many people to be his highest flight barchester towers is admirable it has an almost thackerayan richness archdeacon grantly grows more and more into life and mr harding is as charming as ever mrs prouty is ushered into a world in which she was to make so great an impression mrs proudy has become classical of all trollope's characters she is the most often referred to she is exceedingly true but i do not think she is quite so good as her fame and as several figures from the same hand that have not won so much honour She is rather too violent, too vixenish, too sour. The truly awful female bully, the completely fatal episcopal spouse, would have, I think, a more insidious form, a greater amount of superficial padding. The Stanhope family, in Barchester Towers, are a real Trouvelle and the idea of transporting the signora neroni into a cathedral town was an inspiration there could not be a better example of trollope's manner of attaching himself to character than the whole picture of bertie stanhope Bertie is a delightful creation, and the scene in which, at the party given by Mrs. Proudie, he puts this majestic woman to rout, is one of the most amusing in all the chronicles of Barset. It is perhaps permitted to wish, by the way, that this triumph had been effected by means intellectual rather than physical though indeed if Bertie had not despoiled her of her drapery we should have lost the lady's admirable unhanded sir mr arabin is charming and the henpecked bishop has painful truth but mr slope i think is a little too arrant a scamp he is rather too much the old game he goes too coarsely to work and his clamminess and cant are somewhat overdone He is an interesting illustration, however, of the author's dislike, at that period at least, of the bareness of evangelical piety. In one respect, Barchester Towers is, to the best of our recollection, unique, being the only one of Trollope's novels in which the interest does not centre more or less upon a simple maiden in her flower. The novel offers us nothing in the way of a girl, though we know that this attractive object was to lose nothing by waiting. Eleanor Bold is a charming and natural person, but Eleanor Bold is not in her flower. After this, however, Trollope settled down steadily to the English girl. He took possession of her and turned her inside out he never made her a subject of heartless satire as cynical fabulists of other lands have been known to make the shining daughters of those climes he bestowed upon her the most serious the most patient the most tender the most copious consideration He is evidently always more or less in love with her, and it is a wonder how, under these circumstances, he should make her so objective, plant her so well on her feet. But, as I have said, if he was a lover, he was a paternal lover, as competent as a father who has had fifty daughters." He has presented the British maiden under innumerable names, in every station and in every emergency in life, and with every combination of moral and physical qualities. She is always definite and natural. She plays her part most properly. She has always health in her cheek and gratitude in her eye. She has not a touch of the morbid, and is delightfully tender, modest, and fresh. Trollope's heroines have a strong family likeness, but it is a wonder how finely he discriminates between them. One feels, as one reads him, like a man with sets of female cousins. Such a person is inclined at first to lump each group together, but presently he finds that even in the groups there are subtle differences. Trollope's girls, for that matter, would make delightful cousins— he has scarcely drawn that we can remember a disagreeable damsel. Lady Alexandrina de Courcy is disagreeable, and so is Amelia Roper, and so are various provincial and indeed metropolitan spinsters, who set their caps at young clergymen and government clerks griselda grantly was a stick and considering that she was intended to be attractive alice vavasour does not commend herself particularly to our affections but the young women i have mentioned had ceased to belong to the blooming season they had entered the bristling or else the limp period not that trollope's more mature spinsters invariably fall into these extremes miss thorne of ollathorne miss dunstable miss mackenzie rachel ray if she may be called mature miss baker and miss todd in the bertrams lady julia guest who comforts poor john ames these and many other amiable figures rise up to contradict the idea A gentleman who had sojourned in many lands was once asked by a lady—neither of these persons was English—in what country he had found the women most to his taste. "'Well, in England,' he replied. "'In England?' the lady repeated. "'Oh, yes,' said her interlocutor. "'They are so affectionate.' The remark was fatuous, but it has the merit of describing Trollope's heroines. "'They are so affectionate.' mary thorne lucy robarts adela gauntlet lily dale nora rowley grace crawley have a kind of clinging tenderness a passive sweetness which is quite in the old english tradition trollope's genius is not the genius of shakespeare but his heroines have something of the fragrance of imogen and desdemona there are two little stories to which I believe his name has never been affixed, but which he is known to have written, that contain an extraordinarily touching representation of the passion of love in its most sensitive form. In Linda Tressel and Nina Balatka the vehicle is plodding prose, but the effect is none the less poignant and in regard to this I may say that in a hundred places in Trollope the extremity of pathos is reached by the homeliest means. He often achieved a conspicuous intensity of the tragical. The long, slow process of the conjugal wreck of Louis Trevelyan and his wife in, he knew he was right, with that rather lumbering movement which is often characteristic of Trollope, arrives at last at an impressive completeness of misery it is the history of an accidental rupture between two stiff-necked and ungracious people the little rift within the lute which widens at last into a gulf of anguish Touch is added to touch, one small, stupid, fatal aggravation to another, and, as we gaze into the widening breach, we wonder at the vulgar materials of which tragedy sometimes composes itself. I have always remembered the chapter called Casalonga toward the close of He Knew He Was Right, as a powerful picture of the insanity of stiff-neckedness. Louis Trevelyan, separated from his wife, alone, haggard, suspicious, unshaven, undressed, living in a desolate villa on a hilltop near Siena, and returning doggedly to his fancied wrong, which he has nursed until it becomes an hallucination, is a picture worthy of Balzac. Here, and in several other places, Trollope has dared to be thoroughly logical, He has not sacrificed to conventional optimism. He has not been afraid of a misery which should be too much like life. He has had the same courage in the history of the wretched Mr. Crawley, and in that of the much-to-be-pitied Lady Mason. In this latter episode he found an admirable subject, a quiet charming tender-souled english gentlewoman who as i remember the story of orley farm forges a codicil to a will in order to benefit her son a young prig who doesn't appreciate immoral heroism and who is suspected accused tried and saved from conviction only by some turn of fortune that i forget who is furthermore an object of high-bred respectful old-fashioned gallantry on the part of a neighbouring baronet so that she sees herself dishonoured in his eyes as well as condemned in those of her boy such a personage and such a situation would be sure to yield under trollope's handling the last drop of their reality There are many more things to say about him that I am able to add to these very general observations, the limit of which I have already passed. It would be natural, for instance, for a critic who affirms that his principal merit is the portrayal of individual character, to enumerate several of the figures that he has produced. I have not done this, and I must ask the reader who is not acquainted with Trollope to take my assertion on trust. The reader who knows him will easily make a list for himself. No account of him is complete in which allusion is not made to his practice of carrying certain actors from one story to another a practice which he may be said to have inherited from thackeray as thackeray may be said to have borrowed it from balzac it is a great mistake however to speak of it as an artifice which would not naturally occur to a writer proposing to himself to make a general portrait of a society He has to construct that society, and it adds to the illusion in any given case that certain other cases correspond with it. Trollope constructed a great many things, a clergy, an aristocracy, a middle class, an administrative class, a little replica of the political world. His political novels are distinctly dull, and I confess I have not been able to read them, he evidently took a great deal of pains with his aristocracy it makes its first appearance if i remember right in dr thorne in the person of the lady arabella de courcy it is difficult for us in america to measure the success of that picture which is probably however not absolutely to the life There is in Dr. Thorne, and some other works, a certain crudity of reference to distinctions of rank, as if people's consciousness of this matter were on either side, rather inflated. It suggests a general state of tension. It is true that, if Trollope's consciousness had been more flaccid, he would perhaps not have given us Lady Lufton and Lady Glencora Palliser." Both of these noble persons are as living as possible, though I see Lady Lufton, with her terror of Lucy Robarts, the best. There is a touch of poetry in the figure of Lady Glencora, but I think there is a weak spot in her history. The actual woman would have made a fool of herself to the end with Burgo Fitzgerald. She would not have discovered the merits of Plantagenet Palliser. Or if she had, she would not have cared about them. It is an illustration of the business like way in which Trollope laid out his work that he always provided a sort of underplot to alternate with his main story, a strain of narrative of which the scene is usually laid in a humbler walk of life. It is to his underplot that he generally relegates his vulgar people, his disagreeable young women, and I have often admired the perseverance with which he recounts these less edifying items. Now and then it may be said, as in Ralph the Heir, the story appears to be all underplot and all vulgar people. These, however, are details... As I have already intimated, it is difficult to specify in Trollope's work, on account of the immense quantity of it, and there is sadness in the thought that this enormous mass does not present itself in a very portable form to posterity. Trollope did not write for posterity, he wrote for the day, the moment, but these are just the writers whom posterity is apt to put into its pocket. So much of the life of his time is reflected in his novels that we must believe a part of the record will be saved, and the best parts of them are so sound and true and genial that readers with an eye to that sort of entertainment will always be sure, in a certain proportion, to turn to them. Trollope will remain one of the most trustworthy, though not one of the most eloquent, of the writers who have helped the heart of man to know itself. The heart of man does not always desire this knowledge; it prefers sometimes to look at history in another way, to look at the manifestations without troubling about the motives. There are two kinds of taste in the appreciation of imaginative literature the taste for emotions of surprise, and the taste for emotions of recognition. It is the latter that Trollope gratifies, and he gratifies it the more that the medium of his own mind, through which we see what he shows us, gives a confident direction to our sympathy. His natural rightness and purity are so real that the good things he projects must be real. A race is fortunate when it has a good deal of the sort of imagination of imaginative feeling that has fallen to the share of Anthony Trollope, and in this possession our English race is not poor. 1883 End of chapter 4, part 3 Anthony Trollope